G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Wild passages each in their own way, aren't they? Yeah. Thought-provoking at the very least. I'd actually like to start elsewhere if I could. Matthew chapter 16 uh, from verse 15. But what about you? Uh, This is Jesus asking the 12 disciples, his nearest and dearest um, part the way through his, his earthly ministry. He'd been with them for a while now. But what about you? Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, I have two questions for us, for you, as we approach this passage uh, this morning in 1 Corinthians. Two questions on these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. The first question regards your convictions. Do you still believe it? Do you believe that Jesus will build his church? I will build my church. Do you still, is that part of your conviction still? That he will build his church? Do you believe he remains as committed as ever to the growth of his church now, as when he made that promise back then all of those years ago, uh, that the Christ, the son of the living God, will grow his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, Do we hold that conviction in common, brothers and sisters? Um, I hope we do. Second question then, how? How is he going to do it? I will build my church, says Jesus. How does he mean to use us? How does he mean to use you? Do you have an answer for that question? How does the Christ, the Son of the living God, mean to use you, his servant, in this extraordinary commitment to growth and building and nurturing and maturing and um, expanding and converting and thriving of his church. Do you have a clear sense of what Jesus expects of us? Do you have a clear sense of what Jesus expects of you this morning? Uh, That is where 1 Corinthians chapter 14 very much comes in. Let me say, when I read Matthew uh, 16 on its own, I find it absolutely inspiring. Um, It is such an inspiring chapter, uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because I really want to be part of the church that Jesus is building, that the Christ, the Son of the living God, is committed to building. I want to be part of a church that sees new believers come into the family of faith, the family of Jesus, that nurtures those believers then to um, be established and firm and sure and robust in their faith. And then remains a hothouse, do you see, over the years uh, for us all, for mature and deep spiritual development for us throughout our years, all of our earthly days. Um, I think that is an inspiring picture and I want to be a part of that. I will build my church. Amen to that, Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 16. And I think it's 1 Corinthians 14 that then helps us put legs on that vision, that aspiration, that inspiration that answers the yes, but how are you going to do it, Jesus? 
question, what would you have me do, Lord? How uh, should we grow knowing that you will build? So uh, let's pray as we come to 1 Corinthians 14 now, please. Our Father God in heaven, we bring before you this morning our aspirations for our church and for growth together with our abilities that you have given us, what we have to offer uh, from your providence to us. But we also come before you, O oh God, with a very clear sense of our inadequacy. We don't presume to have it within us, O oh God, to build your church, to build Christ's church. We know that that is his work. It is a spiritual work. It is an eternal work. It is a work that can only be done by your Holy Spirit's movement. And yet, Father, you have shown you are pleased to not only reveal your intentions to us, your plans, but also to involve us in them. So, Father, when our Lord says that he means to build his church, a church of people saved from hell by the loving power of the gospel, God, we want to go all in. We want to get behind that in response to your grace. Would you please teach us how? guide our way by your word, correct our course where we're a bit off track, encourage our hearts please for the work ahead. Lord would you build your church as in us right now. In Jesus name we ask it please. Amen. Uh, So how? How are we to contribute to building his church? Well chapter 14, what you need to Build, to grow, to edify your church is not, what have we seen over the last few weeks as we've been working through 1 Corinthians, is not just gifts, um, extraordinarily gifted, talented, um, amazing individuals, you know, pin your hopes on a few talented individuals, they are the secret to your church's growth. No, (laughs) no, the Corinthians, the Corinthian church had gifts in spades. But, chapter 13, what do you need to build, to grow, to edify your church? Well, it's got to involve love. That was chapter 13, wasn't it? Love that is patient, love that is kind, love that doesn't envy, love, in other words, that uh, resembles, that shines out to us the kind of love that God has taken hold of you with in the gospel. You need that kind of love amongst you if you're going to grow But then chapter 14, as Paul continues his argument here, chapter 14, Paul's saying, don't misunderstand me. Love is not all you need. Um, Sorry, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Love is not all you need. A church that pins its hope for spiritual growth on being a lovely lovely bunch of people has not read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because take a look at 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1. Follow the way of love and, probably the most important word in that sentence, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So a growing Christian church, this is the picture that we're building over these chapters, a growing Christian church is more than just a lovely bunch of people, it won't be less than that. A growing Christian church is more than just a gifted bunch of people although it won't be less than that either, we must learn as a congregation, as a church, to let our love drive our gifts for the growth of the church. 
1 Corinthians 14 answers the question, how are we to contribute to Christ building his church? How are we to cooperate with him in his commitment to build his church? How? Well, let me summarize this uh, sprawling, uh, in some ways baffling, exciting chapter for us into a single sentence. Uh, The overall message of 1 Corinthians 14 is relatively straightforward. It's that if you would be part of a church that builds the spiritual lives of believers, so saves new sinners, uh, builds existing believers, then major on lovingly speaking the word of God to one another. If you would be a part of a church that builds the spiritual lives of believers, then major on lovingly speaking the word of God to one another. That's it. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty straightforward. Uh, he's got, uh, he teases out four practicalities over the course of the chapter. Uh, they are make sure your speaking makes sense, stirs you to serve him together, displays salvation for sinners, and is always done selflessly. So let me say that again all together. If you would be part of a church that builds the spiritual lives of believers then major on speaking the word of God to one another, make sure your speaking makes sense, stirs you to serve him together, displays salvation to sinners and is always selflessly done. How should we combine love and gifts to build the church, his church? So let's unpack that. I'm just going to step through those four practicalities, those four ways that Paul teases it out across the course of this chapter. So firstly, we've got to speak the word of God in a way that makes sense. Um, And that was apparently a massive deal. Did you spot that on the way through? For the church in Corinth to grapple with there, um, as we're going to see, they had a big thing for this speaking in tongues, didn't they? And it comes out um, through about half of the chapter, actually. Uh, Now, the debate, if you've been around Christian circles for a little while, um, you know, the debate about what is it that, what is this speaking in tongues, it, it, that debate rages um, amongst uh, Christians, uh, even to this day. So were the speaking in tongues on view, were they, on the one hand, ecstatic, um, unintelligible, as in non-human speaking? Were they a kind of babble, in other words, perhaps an angelic tongue or something, which uh, is um, the, the non-human, unintelligible language is a practice that crops up in, in other religions down the ages. Is that perhaps what's going on in Corinth? Was it an ecstatic form of speech? Or was it, rather, is Paul just talking about a multilingual congregation? Is that what he's dealing with? Human languages. And some of the people in the congregation are sufficiently fluent in that language and kind of the common tongue amongst them to be able to flip between the languages, interpret what they're saying in that other language, in their mother tongue, back into the common language, whereas others amongst them um, aren't quite so fluent in the common language to be able to interpret and they need to pray that they might be able to. Is that what's going on? Is it just a multilingual congregation? Uh, Well, obviously, the the latter is definitely a part of the picture there because Corinth being a a very multicultural kind of a city, they were absolutely multilingual. Um, But whether or not there was some of this ecstatic, uh, allegedly heavenly tongues going on as well, can I just say um, it's possibly a bit beside Paul's point. His point is when you're in church, whatever other languages are on view, 
speak the word in a way that makes sense. Let's have a look at the text here. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, where Paul opens up, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. What do you make of those Corinthians, the situation that Paul's speaking into there? Because I'll say one thing about them compared to our culture. Gosh, they come across as a bunch of windbags, don't they? (laughs) I mean, in our culture, people are terrified of public speaking. They don't want to do public speaking. No, 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 let someone else do the talking up the front, if you would, please. I'll just, uh, I'd rather not if it's okay. People have actual phobias about public speaking. Avoid it if we possibly can. Not for the Corinthians. They loved speaking. Give me a microphone, would seem to be more their policy. Specifically, though, they loved speaking in tongues. And Paul is saying, oh, well, they love speaking in tongues, which is fine, um, which is uh, tongues edify, tongues strengthens, tongues encourage and build up the person doing the speaking. But when you're in church, Paul says, when you're at church, together with your church, let your speech serve your brothers and sisters. Verse 3 Everyone who prophesies speaks to others for their strengthening and encouragement. Uh, Verse 4, he who prophesies edifies the church. Edifies is a bit of a weird word. It just means built up, strengthened, you know, that kind of building language. Verse 5, by all means interpret those tongues because then they will make sense. Verse 5, so that the church may be edified. So brothers and sisters, how do we apply this to us today? In our, I mean, right in our church, because uh, I don't think we tend to lock up the Word of God in tongues here at church. What's, how might we take hold of this and apply this speaking the Word such that it makes sense? Do we sometimes lock up the Word of God in jargon? You know, the empty, hollow cliches. Is that something we maybe need? To, oh, no, it's not exactly the point that Paul is making. But do we need to beware locking the word of God up, locking the plain meaning of the text up in jargon, in uh, overly difficult ways of... Do you see what I mean? From time to time, you hear someone say, and perhaps you've got someone very dear to you who's said this to you. They they say to you, look, I, I stopped going to church because I didn't feel like I was getting anything out of it. I stopped going to church because I didn't feel I was getting anything out of it. Can you think of someone like that? Um, perhaps there are many, many things that we could say, but at some level, I think you actually could just empathise with that person and answer, mate, that is awful. Church is where spiritual building happens. It is where we get strong in our faith. It is where we encourage one another in our walk with Jesus, where we are comforted as we speak the word of God to one another in a way that makes sense to one another. Mate, if you didn't get that, you were wasting your time anyway on Sunday morning. 
Now, that might not be all that we want to say to them, but it could be part of what we say to them. Let me come back to that. Uh, in church, speak the word in a way that makes sense. Uh, but secondly, if we are to seek the growth of Christ's church here and now, yes, speak the word in a way that makes sense. Secondly, speak the word to stir you up to serve him together. Uh, secondly, have a look at verse 6 with me, would you please? 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 6, where we read, Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And just note what Paul's doing here, of course. I think he's kind of cheeky with these Corinthians, actually. Um, when I come to church, he's saying, the question is not, will it be good for me today? No, it's what is it? It's not what will I get out of it. It's verse 6, what is it? What good will I be to you? He's subtle, isn't he? He's subtle in, in terms of um, why, reshaping why these Corinthians even go to church. Might make you ask the question, why am I even here this morning? at church. Is it what good can I be to my fellow believers today? What good can I be for the people who are there? And then Paul's got two long stories, you see, uh, which we're just going to have to summarise because there's so much in this chapter today. Firstly, musical instruments. And Paul says, musical instruments, they exist to make songs, not just sounds, Musical instruments exist to make songs. And the trumpet specifically, he zeroes in on that one. It doesn't just make any song. It sings for a very specific purpose. Have a look at verse 8 with me. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Do you see? Which I take to be saying, when we speak the word of God among the people of God, such that it makes sense to the people of God, then shouldn't it stir us? To action, I suspect that's part of the reason he's chosen that metaphor. Shouldn't it move us? Um, so church, in a sense, shouldn't be a cosy and safe and comfortable place to be. Why? Because the word of God's going to make a stir. It's designed to make a stir amongst us. If it's doing its job, it should move the people of God together to respond together to his call on us together which is why tongues um, is a bit of a tragic waste, Paul is saying in the Corinthian context, because do foreign, uh, unintelligible words that I can't make sense of, do they cause us to move forward together? Verse 11, if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker and he's a foreigner to me. See how it's driving the Corinthian church apart rather than stirring them together. Um, it is a beautiful thing, it is a uniting thing, it's a powerful thing when Christians meet together to stir one another on in their faith, to serve uh, the Lord together as we speak his word to one another. Um, so let's just go back to that, that mate again for a moment. You know, it might be your son or your daughter, it might be your sister or your brother or a dear friend. I stopped going to church because I wasn't getting anything out of it. Another angle is you could say, mate, I hear you say, I stopped going because I wasn't getting anything out of it. 
May I ask, for whose benefit were you going to church? And I'm obviously thinking here of verse 6, what good will I be to you? Mate, maybe you need to get back to church and be the change there that you want to see. For the sake of your brothers and sisters, if you wish, if you wish that church was a place of spiritual significance in your week, if you wish that church was a place of stirring encouragement, of being stirred up in your faith, a, a, a rich comfort, I don't mean in, in a cosy sense, but a rich comfort to your faith, um, an expression of your meaningful unity, then amen. We actually need you at church, brother or sister. I'll see you there next Sunday. But what if, uh, this is leading into our next point, what if that friend you suspect perhaps isn't even a Christian? You know, you've got doubts about their faith itself and and that maybe is the the real reason why they're not coming to church anymore. Um, It's probably not going to wash with them, is it? to inspire them to speak the word of God with clarity because that's not the touchstone of their lives anyway, particularly. Well, that's where this next bit comes in. When Christians speak the word of God in a way that makes sense and that stirs us together in the Lord, that in itself will serve as a sign of salvation, even for unbelievers. Let's take a look together at this next section. Um, We'll pick it up from verse 23 for now. Verse 23 where Paul says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who don't understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? And that, that is, if you're speaking of God in a language that they cannot make sense of, they get nothing out of it. In fact, worse than nothing out of it, they think you're insane. Verse 24, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, He'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all. And I don't think that means judgmentalism. I think it means, wow, that that conviction that leads to repentance Uh, will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. I do wonder, do we sometimes underestimate just what it is that we have here at church? You see, I think about my non-Christian friends Uh, my non-church-going mates, I think they struggle to talk about personal growth in a real and safe way. Uh, I think they struggle to talk about the men that they wish that they were. I think they struggle to talk about the failings that they have in their own lives, which they know are there. Struggle to talk about the journey that they wish they were on and kind of hope that they are on, but sometimes aren't quite sure that they are on, certainly aspire to be on, do you know? But the thing is, when, as church, we are at our best, isn't that the stuff that we talk about every single week? That's what we come together to do every single week, minister the word of God to one another. You know, even just over morning tea, when we speak the word of God to stir or to comfort to challenge or to encourage in a way that binds us shoulder to shoulder together in the Lord. We're not not trying to shame one another. We're not trying to crush one another. We're not trying to squash one another, but we are trying to grow. We are trying to spur one another on. We are seeking change in one another's lives. Gosh, I think we have something special here at church, something even enviable here at church. 
We need to do church well, do you see, for that friend, for that daughter, for that son. By the way, um, did you notice the stuff from verse 22? I think there's a couple of kind of confusing-ish verses at first glance there. Verse 22, could we read that together? Where Paul says, and this sounds like it's the opposite of of what I've just described at, at first glance. Verse 22, tongues then, he says, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. And you've got that quote from Isaiah as well. That was why Jack read those verses for us before, uh, through, uh, this is verse 21 of 1 Corinthians, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, God says, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me. Um, Please don't be put off, don't be confused by those verses. Paul is not, pretty transparently in the verses that follow, he's not encouraging the Corinthians to speak in tongues to unbelievers. His point is this, His point is, it has always been a sign of the judgment of God on the unbelief of his own people when foreign language gets lumped on them. It has always been a sign of the judgment of God on unbelief amongst the people of God when foreign language gets lumped on them. So think back through your Bibles, if if you could just quickly, you think of the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the languages of mankind there in Genesis 11. You think of the army of the Assyrians coming and wiping out the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC, um, which was around Isaiah's time. You think of the Babylonians exiling Judah, the Babylonians coming with King Nebuchadnezzar, the foreign languages, foreign peoples, exiling Judah in the 6th century BC out of their land, out of the promised land of God. Why? Because of the unbelief of God's people. Foreign tongues signal to an astute Bible uh, mind, the judgment of God on unbelief amongst the people of God, do you see? And so Paul is saying, don't be a church that makes judgment the sign that you hold out to unbelievers in your midst. Give them the sign of a gospel of saving words that actually make sense to them. And so verse 25, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Speak God's word in a way that makes sense. Speak it so that it stirs us together to serve the Lord. Speak it such that it is a sign of salvation, both for unbelievers and for believers, in a sense. Now, lastly, the last section is both the most prickly, uh, because of the verses about women particularly, and yet, in some ways, is really the most straightforward section of the whole chapter. Um, How will a church full of speakers full of people who are now eager to speak a um, sense-making word, a stirring, inspiring, instructing word, how will they decide who gets to speak at any one point? So the final section is, well, with selfless, loving restraint. That is the general and very simple point in this whole last section of 1 Corinthians 14. And I think it comes out pretty clearly from verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. 
down at verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Uh, Let me ask, just incidentally, does their church, the Corinthian church, or at least what Paul is describing they should be like, (laughs) does their church sound markedly different to our church to you? In a way, yes, right? You know, two or three this and two or three that. Um, But please keep in mind, they didn't have a New Testament Bible to read from, did they? Why? Well, because it was still being written. In fact, this letter formed part of the New Testament Bible, you know what I mean? So, in a sense, you could say, well, we do do this every single week. We have several prophets speak, right, our Bible readings. We have words of instructions. We have hymns. Uh, We all weigh what's said, at the very least, over morning tea, in addition to, you know, the mulling over that we do, uh, perhaps sometimes with the person next to us during the sermon. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And that is the context, I believe, for making the best sense of this strange call on the wives of Corinth to be silent. Um, And I say wives very deliberately here. Um, Firstly, these particular women, you can see it in the text, have husbands to talk to at home, verse 35. Um, And secondly, they're called to submission. What does verse 34 say? As the law says. Now, the Old Testament law, um, yes, it does shape the relationship between a bride and her husband in a way that could be described as submission. And obviously, you need to be fairly careful with how you use that word and how you define that word. And um, I won't be doing that today, but if you'd like to talk with me more about that, um, we could have a fruitful conversation there. We have to be careful with that word, but yes, between husband and wife. But on my reading, nowhere in the law, as in, in the Old Testament law, does it place a burden of submission on women generally to submit to men generally. If, if you know about it, you come and tell me, but I, I can't see whether... So, no, I think it must be speaking about Wives, that must be what Paul's addressing, uh, the issue Paul's addressing here in this context. So 1 Corinthians 14 then, let's read it in that light, verse 33, where he says, As in all the congregations of the saints, wives should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful, that's strong language, isn't it, for a wife to speak in the church. Could we note just a few things? Um, Firstly, where Paul says, as in all the congregations of the saints, as in all the congregations of the saints, it gives the impression, doesn't it, I'm not asking you to do something that is culturally weird in our prevailing first century culture across the Mediterranean. This is the prevailing cultural expectation and I encourage you to maintain it, Paul is saying, as in all the congregations of the saints. And the historians uh, in in our day, looking back at that day, corroborate that. Uh, So here's one writer who says, there existed in the Greco-Roman world in that period a strong prejudice against women speaking in public. Such behaviour was treated as totally inappropriate. Just understanding the culture of their day and and how Paul's instruction would have been understood there. Nothing new, in a sense. Second thing to note from these words, uh, was Paul 
down about the things that women would have to say? Was Paul down about women's education or intelligence? Well, he says, what does he say? He says that wives should ask their own husband at home, which implies to me that, no, Paul expects, actually, uh, legitimate, intelligent questions to come from the wives of Corinth. Um, He's just concerned about where they're asked, where they're voiced, in what context, at church or at home. It's not that their question's not worth asking. No, they're worth asking and they're worthy of an answer. But it is a question of context for Paul. Lastly, um, thirdly, does this ring bells from a few weeks ago, the strongest language of all there, where he says, uh, end of verse 35, for it is disgraceful for a wife to speak in the church. Um, Do you recall back from four weeks ago, and uh, I'm sorry if you weren't here for this sermon, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the first half, do you remember what was Paul's concern there regarding the women in public speaking? Uh, In chapter 11, Paul assumed, didn't he, assumed that the wives of Corinth would speak in church, actually, and in pretty high-powered roles, wasn't it? What were the words there? Prayer and prophecy. Uh, No, what was Paul's concern about the women or the wives in prayer and prophecy back in chapter 11? It was that their wives, that the wives in the church, not shame their husbands by culturally inappropriate and perhaps provocative headdress, do you remember? Or rather not wearing their headdress, which would have been shameful to their husbands and culturally inappropriate in that context. And I know it sounds weird to us, but for them, when wives stepped out in that way, broke the social convention, it didn't just sort of cause a bit of a stir, it actively shamed their husbands culturally if those social mores weren't followed. And Paul was saying, you don't want to do that. Now, in a similar way in chapter 14, um, sure, women can pray or prophesy. He's talked about that back in chapter 11. Uh, But in the hubbub of church life, where prophecy is being weighed, where it's discussed and questioned and tossed tossed and, and tossed around, wives, how will a loving self restraint look? in your particular instance, it may actually mean, it will mean, as in all the congregations of the saints, a patient public quietness in their culture, which makes our modern ears burn, right? (laughs) But which helped their ancient church be built. Um, Two modern writers. Let me sum this up with uh, some words from a couple of modern writers. One American, one Australian, so very much uh, understanding of our culture. Um, And they note that, thankfully, our culture has shifted and the significance of women speaking in public, wives speaking in public, is very different now. It carries a very different connotation um, now, which will result in a very different application of this text. So they say, "In, in many societies today, women are no less prepared to ask appropriate questions than their husbands, and it is considered just as perfectly normal and appropriate for them to participate in public dialogues as it is for men. There is no longer any shame or disgrace associated with such engagement. Rather, it would be considered shameful for a woman to be restricted from open participation in public conversations. The principles underlying Paul's counsel that women and men 
not act disgracefully in public or in ways that reflect a lack of respect for the dignity of their spouses, uh, those principles underlying Paul's counsel may well call for a different set of concrete behaviours in our churches than would have been expected in the first century Corinth. Uh, if you'd like to talk with me more about that, tease out what does, what does that actually look like in our churches, what did it really look like back then, uh, all of the, does, uh, what that uh, meant in terms of the, the view of women in that day, um, I'd, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But for now, let's, um, let's move to a conclusion for the whole chapter. And may I say, I reckon verse 36, the way Paul concludes... In some ways, isn't that a peculiar way to conclude this chapter on the how of church growth, on how uh, to build your church, on Jesus' method for building our church? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 36, Paul asks this question. He says, did the word of God originate with you or are you the only people it has reached? Did the word of God originate with you or are you the only people it has reached? You know, I've said a lot about the how and, and when of who does what speaking in your church meetings, Corinthians. But let me ask you this, where did it all start? Where did the word of God start? Where did it come from? Could you put your minds back there? Did the word of God originate with you? And you see, I think Paul is asking that question because Paul knows it's actually not enough for church growth to just speak the word of God? I think Paul's asking them that question because he knows it's actually not enough for you to build a church to even speak that word in love. You can combine the most excellent way of love with the greatest gifts of speaking the spiritual words of God to save hearts and, uh, sorry, stir hearts and save sinners. But would you see that you not lose touch with where that word began? with who it came from. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, the word that you have spoken, that selfless, loving word become flesh, come into our world, the word that you have spoken, he is our hope, he is our confidence, he is our joy and our strength, he is our hope for church growth. Father, may the word of the Lord Jesus be our song together. May he be the word that stirs us and that strengthens us, that saves our loved ones, that shapes our lives individually and our life together as a church. God, we need your help when we attempted to shrink back from speaking the word, would you please unstill our tongues? When we attempted to speak all too loudly or all too much, would you please still our tongues? Father, we pray that Jesus would build his church right here. And lastly, God, we pray for the salvation of unbelievers, especially for our loved ones for whom the word of Christ has become an all too familiar babble, have mercy, please, our God and Father, for Christ's sake. Amen.